All right, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. If you're using the Black Bibles, that can be found on page 942. As Christians, we often rejoice in the finished work of Christ, right? We can rejoice in that all year, all year round. But of course, this is the weekend when we especially celebrate and remember Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And so our passage today in Romans 5, I trust, will help us to do that, to celebrate what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 But our main text is going to be verses 6 through 11. So would you stand, please, once again in honor of God's word? And please follow along as I read. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. The title of the sermon this morning is Christ Died for Sinners. One of the main purposes of this section, Romans 5, 1 through 11, is to give believers confidence that their relationship with God is secure. Okay, that's the main purpose, to give believers confidence that their relationship with God is secure, that the life, death, and resurrection of Christ has reconciled us back to God, that God has declared us righteous, and we can enjoy a secure relationship with Him now in full confidence that in the end, God will welcome us into eternal glory, that we'll be raised with Christ and be with Him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Today, in verses 6 through 11, as we consider the love and grace that God has shown us through Jesus Christ, I I just want to share with you what I'm asking God to do, right? So as we consider the love of God, as we consider the grace of God that we see in verses 6 through 11, I pray that the Spirit will cause us to stand in awe of the love of God, right? We sing about the love of God, we, we rejoice in the love of God, and I want us to be once again, in awe of the love of God for us in Christ. And I also pray then that we will rejoice in the secure relationship that we have with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we revel in the love of God and as we rejoice in our secure relationship with God, 
I pray then that the Spirit will move us to renew our commitment to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And of course, I also pray that through the living and life-giving Word of God, the Spirit might take any listening today who are still separated from God in their sins, and that out of the abundance of His mercy and grace, He might take you and, and reconcile you to Himself, that you would be reconciled to God through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So those are some big things that that I'm asking God for, and that I know many of you are too. But we know God does that by His grace and power through His Word. So let's dive into verses 6 through 11. It divides nicely into two sections, really. Verses 6 through 8 and 9 through 11. So I'm going to cover those two sections under two headings. First, I'll cover verses 6 through 8 under the heading, Amazing Love, and then verses 9 through 11 under the heading, Amazing Results, okay? So first notice with me, Amazing Love in verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So verses 6 through 8 is showing that God's amazing love is demonstrated, or you could even say is proven by the fact that Christ died for sinners. That's what Paul's saying there. God's, the proof of God's love is that Christ died for sinners like you and me. Notice that verses 6 through 8 begin and end with the assertion that Christ died for sinners, right? Verse 6 says Christ died for the ungodly, and then verse 8 says Christ died for us. So it's about the death of Christ, because that's proof that God loves his people. The death of Christ on behalf of sinners and in the place of sinners on the cross is proof of God's amazing love for his people, right? Think about how... Think about how the death of Christ proves God's love for his people. What is the essence of love? How is love demonstrated? Is it not by giving, right? I mean, we could say the essence of love is giving. And God has given his one and only son to die on the cross in the place of sinners. And as we think about trying to to get our minds around the greatness, the, the, the bigness, the hugeness of God's love, there's a couple of ways you can measure the greatness of love. The first way is, is in the, the costliness of the gift to the giver, right? And then the second way is by the worthiness, or we could say the unworthiness of the party receiving the gift. In other words, the more the gift costs the giver and the less the recipient deserves it, the greater the love is seen to be. And that's exactly the case when we think about Christ and us. And that's what Paul is saying here. So I want us to consider those two ways so that we can get our minds around the amazing greatness and the absolute uniqueness of God's love. First, notice the costliness of the gift. How much did it cost God? Right? That's how we kind of can tell how much something, how, how loving, how sacrificial that is, right? I mean, if, if, if you spend five minutes helping me unload something, that's, that's nice of you to do, right? But if you take your whole day off and help me finish a proj- project, that's, that's a bigger sacrifice, isn't it? That's even a greater expression of love. 
Well, what did God give? What did he do? He gave his one and only son. It cost him his son. The most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He gave his one and only son. Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God. Right, the Bible reveals that, that there's one living God, the creator, sustainer of all things, and this God exists in three persons. Right? It, it's, it's, it's a mystery to us, but one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. These three persons have distinct roles, but they are all co-equally God, and they've always enjoyed perfect, intimate, unhindered fellowship together, the triune God. From eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit have delighted in one another, have enjoyed each other. And so it was an amazing act of love on the Father's part to give His one and only Son. And of course, it's an amazing act of love on the Son's part, Jesus, to willingly lay down His life for us. Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. The Apostle Paul reflected on the love of Christ in Galatians 2, 20, when he says in the second half of that verse, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, Jesus willingly gave himself up for sinners like you and me. Jesus gave up his very life. And of course, in order to do that, he first had to become one of us. He, he first left the glories of heaven. He, he left the, the, the worship and the, and the glory that he deserves. He left all of that to come to earth to become a man. He humbled himself by taking on a human nature and, and, and living and, and growing up as a, as a human without sin. And then he willingly died on the cross He willingly laid down his life on the cross as a sin offering, dying in the place of his people. That's an amazing act of love. And really, it's even more amazing than we probably realize, right? Those of us who are familiar with the cross, we think, wow, that was a great sacrifice, you know? I mean, that that had to be painful. That had to, uh, you know, that had to be scary, and, and I'm sure it was. But it's, it's even greater than we can comprehend because by dying on the cross, not only did Jesus suffer mocking and humiliation and intense physical pain, but the climax of his suffering was being forsaken by his Father. In the Bible, you read the accounts of the crucifixion and on the cross, though Jesus was sinless, he became sin for us, just like we sang. And so he took all the sins of his people upon himself, bearing the guilt and suffering the punishment that we deserve. And again, we read about this in the Bible that as Jesus hung on the cross, though it was the middle of the day, the sky turned pitch black. And that was when the father was pouring out his holy wrath on his son. Remember I said they had always enjoyed intimate, unhindered, perfect fellowship together. But now, that fellowship was broken. That fellowship was cut off. The Father 
not only turned his back on his son, but he cursed and damned his son. He judged his son. Because on the cross, his son was becoming sin. Sin for us. God the Father gave his most precious gift, his eternal son. God the Son gave up his intimate fellowship with the Father on the cross as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he gave up his very life. So again, you can measure the the greatness of love first by the costliness of the gift to the giver. It was a costly gift, wasn't it? Second way you measure the greatness of love is by the worthiness, or we could say more appropriately, unworthiness of the party receiving the gift. And that's exactly what Paul is describing here. This passage gives four descriptions of humanity. These four descriptions apply to every one of us. This is who we all were by nature apart from Christ. Look with me and notice the descriptions back in verse 6 through 8 here. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then you throw in verse 10 and a couple of verses later and it describes us as God's enemies. So there's four descriptions of us apart from Christ. And I want us to make sure we understand those. I'm going to skip the first one week. I'll circle back around to it. But ungodly, right? It says Christ died for the ungodly in verse 6. This word means that we were in a state of fierce opposition to God. This is true of every single person. It doesn't matter how, how good they look on the outside, how, how, how good of a neighbor they are or whatever. By nature, we are all this way. We are all in a state of fierce opposition to God. God is sovereign, but by nature, we do not want him to rule over us. We want to rule ourselves. We want to be free to do as we please. We do not accept God's righteous and moral standards. Instead of loving God with all our being, we rebel against him. Some in more explicit ways than others, but we all rebel against him. And that leads to the second description there I want us to look at. Sinners, right? That while we were still sinners, verse 8, Christ died for us. We have, that means we've departed from the ways of righteousness. We've fallen short of God's standards. We've missed the, the target. We've broken God's laws. So ungodly and sinners are very similar. And if, if you want to try to make some distinction between them, think of the Ten Commandments, right? And those of you familiar with the Ten Commandments know they were on two tablets or two tables, right? And the first table were, were basically the rules about our vertical relationship with God, right? And the second tablet was about our, our horizontal relationships with each other. Well, ungodly is talking about the, how we break the, the vertical relationship against God, and sinners is kind of maybe perhaps more focusing on the, how we break the horizontal relationships with each other. But either way, those are God's laws, and so it's all ultimately rebellion against God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul has already said in Romans 3.23. And so then that leads us to what we'll see in verse 10. 
by nature, we were enemies of God. And again, that means this opposition, this by nature, we, we have this deep-seated hostility to God, a resentment of his authority. And where it most manifests itself is by nature, we refuse to bow before his king. In other words, the king that God has established, Jesus Christ. Right? That's, that's what the cross and, the, and, the, and then the resurrection and the exaltation, ascension to heaven shows that Christ is Lord. He's Lord. And if, you, if we will not follow him, if we will not trust in him, if we will not uh, give our lives to him, to turn from our way of living and give our lives to him, that is, is rebellion. That is, that is shaking our fist in the face of God saying, I will not have him be king over me. That makes us God's enemies. Our sin is an act of hostility toward God. And again, it, it may not be, you may not be even thinking about it. It may not be a conscious hostility, but this hostility can manifest itself even in a quiet insubordination, even in an indifference to God. We were created to know God, to bring glory to him, to worship him, to exalt his son, Jesus Christ. And if we never give him a passing thought and just live for ourselves, that's hostility because we're, we're, we're rejecting his king. We're rejecting his first place that he deserves in our life. And so we're enemies by nature. And that, and that, that enmity goes both ways. By nature, God is angry with us. God is, by nature, God is angry with sinners. He's, he's kind, he's patient, he's long-suffering. He continues to give us life. He continues to hold our bodies together. He continues to, to send his son and rain so that we can work and produce food and, and, and live. But he is angry toward us. And if we die still in that sin, he will judge us forever. If we die still in our sins, we will face God's wrath. And his wrath, I'm going to mention wrath a few times in this sermon. Wrath is not um, like a, a human father, you know, just blowing up and losing his temper and, you know, doing something he shouldn't do. No, wrath is, God's wrath is holy. It's a holy hatred of sin. It's not him flying off the handle. This is his settled response towards sin because he is just and he is holy and he must punish sin. And again, sin is, is all those things I was saying against him. So those are pretty bleak descriptions, aren't they? Those three. And then I wanted to come back to the, the very first one, weak, right? For while we were weak, it says that maybe an even more helpful translation would be powerless. That's what it means. For while we were powerless... In other words, it's talking about, this is what's true of us, all the things I've been saying, right? And I'll throw it on top of that, we are completely unable to save ourselves. We are powerless to save ourselves. We're powerless to rescue ourselves. We're incapable of doing anything to try to fix this mess that we have made. We're incapable of trying to somehow make ourselves right with God. Ephesians chapter 2 says, by nature we are dead in our sins. We're unable to save ourselves. 
We're unable to make a move toward God. We're unable to understand spiritual things on our own. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, we're unable to seek God. Romans 8.11 says, so left to ourselves, we're going to stay in this state of rebellion. We're going to stay in this state of, of insubordination and of enmity with God, and we can't do anything about it, or even probably better, we wouldn't want to do anything about it if left to ourselves. What a picture he's painted. God was rightly hostile toward us. There was nothing we could do anything about it. And so if there was going to be any salvation, if there was going to be any reconciliation or peacemaking, guess who had to do it? God. God had to do it, and God alone. And that's what he's saying. Verse 6, For while we were still weak, powerless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You see, it's against this dark backdrop of our condition apart from Christ that we see the, the beauty, the glory, the brightness of God's love. Because what he's explaining is God loved us not when we were lovely people. Not when we were people who were seeking him and, and trying to do our best. And, and, and No, then we might think, okay, well, yeah, I can see why God would love us. No, God loved us when we were enemies, when we were in rebellion against him and not seeking him, not caring, not wanting to have anything to do with him. And yet it's in that state that God in his mercy and grace said, I'm going to show love to sinners and I'm going to send my son, Jesus Christ. You see how that just magnifies the beauty, the glory of God's love. This is amazing love. God loved us, not when we were lovely, not when we were trying to obey him. He loved us when we were sinners actively opposing him. God died for the ungodly, for sinful people who were his enemies. He sacrificed his own son to save those who were actively rebelling against him. This is amazing love. It's amazing. And, and really, that word doesn't even do it justice, right? I mean, what word do you use? Amazing is kind of a word we use in our songs, right? Amazing grace or amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? That's this passage right here. It's not just that God's love is like ours, but a little bigger. No, it's completely other. The Apostle John says, behold, what manner of love is this? It's in a class all by itself. There's no other kind of love. So whatever word you want to use, remarkable, uh, awesome, that would be an appropriate time to use the word awesome. It's awesome. It's amazing. But whatever word you use, let us celebrate and glory in God's love for us. Remember, the flow of this passage is about the assurance of God's love for us, the assurance of our salvation. And Paul is saying, Guys, if you want assurance of God's love for you, look at the cross. Look at the cross. Remember who you were, think about who Jesus is, and think about what he did. We have the objective proof of God's love in the cross, 
And then verse 5 that we read earlier says we have the subjective experience of it through the indwelling Holy Spirit. God's love has been poured into our hearts, verse 5 says, through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit to the believers to give us assurance, to give us a present experience that God loves us. That the Spirit seals to our hearts the truths of the gospel, the objective truths of the cross. And so during those times when we, when we, when we sin and, and Satan's accusing or whatever and, and we feel like, oh, God cannot love us, we look at the cross and the Spirit reminds us of that. No, God does love you by his grace. Or like this passage said right before this, during those times of intense suffering, Right? And you're going through so many trials and so much pain, and, and maybe you're starting to question, you know, what, what's going on here? Is God mad at me? Does God not love me? Has he for, forsaken me? Has he forgotten me? No, no, no. No, Christian, he says, look at the cross. Remember, Christ died for you. God, God loves you. God loves you. So that's amazing love. Now let's move to verses 9 through 11. Amazing results. I'll read 9 through 11. Really, 11 is kind of just a summary verse, but but we see them even in 9 and 10. Look with me and see if you can find the results. What are the results of of the fact that Christ died for us, right? God's love uh, was proven in the fact that Christ died for us. Now, what are the results of that, of that work on the cross for us? Verse 9. Since, therefore, we've now been justified by his blood. By his blood, that's talking about his death, right? So there's a result, justified. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And then again, verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So you see, Paul is giving the results of Christ's finished work, both now and in the future. Did you see the results? Justification and reconciliation, those are the results now, that we have now because of what Christ has done. Okay, and I'll I'll go through that. Then saved... It's talking about the future, right? You saw that mentioned a couple of times. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God, verse 9. Um, shall we be saved by his life, the end of verse 10. See, that's future. And, and again, that might even raise some eyebrows. Like, why is he talking about saved in the future? I thought I'm already saved, right? We often talk about, you know, we're saved. Well, the Bible, let me just say this real real fast. The Bible talks about salvation in, in different ways. It, 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 there's a past sense to salvation that we have been saved. That's our justification, reconciliation that he's mentioning here. We could throw in there adoption and some other things. That's, that's already happened. We have been saved. The Bible also says we are being saved. I think the passage I read in 1 Corinthians 15 used that language, right? That's talking about our sanctification, this process, that lifelong process that God has us in where he is uh, conforming us by his spirit, by his word, by the other means of grace, more and more to the image of his son. So we have been saved, we are being saved, and then we shall be saved in the future, talking about our glorification, our resurrection, 
okay? So here, Paul, he's not really dealing with the present one, that we are being saved. He's not really dealing with that aspect in this passage. He'll talk about that next chapter in Romans 6 when he's talking about uh, being united to Christ's death and consider yourself dead to sin, alive to God. You're no longer a slave to sin, right? But he is talking about the past and the future. And this is important because he's, he's linking them together. And all, remember, what's his main purpose? His main purpose is to give believers assurance that God loves you, assurance that your relationship with God is secure. And one of the great things that will encourage us about that truth is to remember how, these, how our past salvation is linked unbreakably to our future salvation. Okay? So let's try to work our way through that here. So he's talking about our past. And here the past results he gives are justification and reconciliation. And then the future salvation is saved from God's wrath on that day of final judgment. Okay? So let's make sure we understand what those terms mean. Justification is a legal term. It's... it's, you know, you think of a courtroom setting. It's, it's the exact opposite of, of being condemned, being declared guilty. Justification is the exact opposite of that. It's to, to be declared not guilty or to be declared righteous. In the Bible, justification refers to God's gracious act where he puts a sinner right with himself. He declares a sinner right, not only by pardoning him, but by treating him as righteous, accepting him as righteous. And so the Bible teaches, and that, this is actually what Paul has been laboring. And, you know, I know we jumped right into chapter 5 here of Romans, but this is what he's been talking about ever since the uh, second half of chapter 3 and all through chapter 4, that, that justification comes through faith in Christ. So this, Romans is teaching that everyone who trusts in the death and resurrection of Christ as payment for their sins will be justified. They will be forgiven and declared righteous. Because when we turn from our sins, turn to Christ in, in faith, we are, the Bible says we are united with him. Because you might say, well, how could God declare us just? You just... You just a few minutes ago, we're talking about how we were enemies, how we were sinners, right? How could God be a just judge and declare us righteous? Well, it's because of Christ. And that's what Romans 3 talks about, that because of Christ, he can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Because when we, by God's grace, turn from our sins, place our faith in Christ, we are united to Christ. And so then, that means that our sins were paid for by Christ on the cross, right? So God is being a just judge. He is judging our sins, but he's just judging them um, by Christ, right, on the cross. And not only that, but then also when we're united to Christ in faith, the Bible says that Christ's perfect obedience, right, he lived as a man under God's law, never sinning, so he was the one human who was truly righteous, And the Bible says that through faith we are united to him and his righteousness is credited to our account. So that's how God can declare us righteous. He knows we're sinners. He knows we still can can, uh, struggle with sin. But he takes Christ's record and says, I'm going to apply that to you. 
and consider you righteous and treat you just as I, I treat my son. I'm going to adopt you. You're going to be my dearly loved son, my dearly loved child. So that's justification, and you can see how justification and reconciliation go hand in hand, right? And that's what Paul is doing here. He's talking about what has happened in the past, what is, what, what, uh, what is already true about our salvation. Well, we've been justified, and we've been reconciled to God. Because again, I just described what all is happening in justification. What was it that made us enemies of God? It was our sin, right? Well, when we're united to Christ, our sin is, has been punished by Christ on the cross, Right? And so God can forgive our sins. Christ, uh, our, our sins are, are turned away, taken away from our account. And so we're reconciled to God. We're no longer enemies. We're at peace with God now. Matter of fact, that's what Paul's been saying in this passage. Verse 1 shows that the primary effect of justification for us is peace with God. They go hand in hand. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, our sins, which made us enemies with God, have been paid for. And in Christ, the the righteousness that God requires has been credited to us. So then we're at peace with God. We're reconciled. He loves us. Uh, He adopts us into his family. We can... We're reconciled. We have a relationship with him. We can rejoice in that reconciliation. We can come into his presence with our prayers and our thanksgiving and our worship. So that's already happened. And again, Paul's point then in verses 9 and 10 is because we've already been justified and reconciled by God on the basis of the death of Christ, we can be certain of being saved in the future from the outpouring of God's wrath on that final day of judgment. That's what he's saying. We shall be saved. He says that twice, doesn't he? We shall be saved. And and again, I know when we talk about being saved, we we already think about, well, we've been saved from God's wrath. And in a way, that's true. God's wrath has already been satisfied. It's already been turned away from us. But really, that's going to... What's the word I want to say? That's going to be made explicit in the end, right? Because it's in the end, on the final day of judgment, when God does pour out his wrath on those who don't know Christ. And so that's when what we know is already true is going to actually happen, that we will not face God's wrath. Okay? That's what he's saying. And, and again, to make that connection so explicit, Paul uses here what, an argument that apparently the Jews used often, this uh, argument from heavy to light. In other words, it's arguing that if something great or heavy is true, something great or heavy has already happened, then something we could say lesser or lighter in that same category will also be true. And that's the language Paul is using here in verses 9 and 10. Look, he uses it in verse 9 with justification, then in verse 10 he uses it with reconciliation, both to point to the, how true it is that we will be saved in the future from God's wrath. Look again with me at verse 9. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So since God has already done such great works on our behalf, justifying us when we were ungodly, reconciling us to himself when we were his enemies, Since he has already done that, then God certainly will do 
what we could say is the, the easier thing of saving us from final judgment. Another way of saying that is, since God has already pronounced his verdict of not guilty, we can be certain that we will not be punished when the sentence is handed out on the last day. You see his logic here? He's saying, (laughs) God justified and reconciled us when we were what? Ungodly enemies. Well, then he's certainly going to save us in the end when we're his family members. When we're his children, right? Because that's what we are now. We've been adopted. We're no longer enemies. We're his dearly loved children. And if he treated us this graciously and this lovingly when we were his enemies, he certainly then is going to treat us graciously and lovingly when we are his, his children. That's what he's saying. You see the, the link and the connection? I mean, the, the Bible says this a lot of different ways, doesn't it? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it on the day of Christ Jesus, right? He's already begun this work of salvation, and he's going to be faithful to stick with you, help you persevere through the present, through the suffering, through the sin, through the temptations, through the failings. He's going to be faithful to stick with you all the way to glory when you're officially and finally <laughs> saved from God's wrath and glorified, raised in a resurrection body. All right, the passage I read earlier, 1 Corinthians 15, was, was linking those two things, wasn't it? That Christ is our first fruits. And because he has been raised from the dead in a body with, with no more sin, in a glorified body, then we know that all who are united to him will be saved as well. And that's what Paul says here. He says it very subtly. But did you notice that? Uh, again, look at the contrast here. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We talked about how that happened, right, on the cross. Second half of verse 10. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. His resurrection life. Isn't that beautiful? He, because of his death, we're justified and reconciled. And because of his resurrection, we know that his, his work on the cross, God accepted it, right? Uh, he says that back in chapter 4, that he was raised for our justification. We know that Christ's payment on the cross was accepted. It was paid in full. All our sins have been paid for. All the wrath has been satisfied. No more wrath for us who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. And so because of his resurrection life, we know that we too will be raised. We're going to sing at the end, Jesus lives and so shall I. Since God has saved us when we were his enemies, he will certainly save us now as his friends or even better, as his children. Again, this is, Paul's going to uh, talk about this, this link even later in chapter 8 when he's really talking about our future uh, resurrection and, and glorification. Romans 8, verse 30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Inseparable. So, Christian, may we never doubt God's love. But if, in, in those moments, if we, if we do doubt God's love, 
Just please look to the cross. Please look to the cross and remember God's love. If you ever wonder if you're going to be able to persevere to the end, right? We've been talking about, I mean, the Sermon on the Mount was kind of heavy on that, right? You need to obey. You need to kind of keep obeying. But underneath it all is God's grace. God's grace that acted first. Remember, he loved us not because we were seeking him, not because we met him halfway. No, he went all the way and met us by his grace through Christ. And that same grace continues to preserve us and enable us to persevere and so when you're if you're struggling with sin i mean put it to death by the spirit let's let's do what the bible calls us to do but remember the cross remember that first stake that's been driven in and remember that links to your final salvation as well and if there's any here today who don't know christ as lord and savior We've talked about what the Bible says, what God's word says about our condition apart from Christ, right? That we're enemies, that we're sinners, that we're separated from him, that there is a coming day of judgment. And if we, we're all going to die and we're all going to stand before God, that is for certain. Unless Christ comes back and then we'll all stand before him then. We're all going to stand before God. That's for certain. And if we stand before God still in our sins, not being united to Christ in faith, then God's wrath will be poured out on us. And then it will be too late. We'll be separated from him forever in a place of outer darkness, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place that Jesus talked about a lot place the Bible calls hell. And so I pray that no one would leave here today still in their sins. No one would leave here today still separated from God. The Bible says, turn from your sins, turn from your wickedness, and turn to Christ. Believe on his name, Call on his name and you will be saved. And to believe in Jesus means that you turn from living for yourself, like I was saying earlier, and you trust in his finished work, his life, death, and resurrection as payment for your sins. And not only that, you're you're turning from living for yourself and you're saying, Jesus, I want to live for you. Lord, I want to live for you. I realize I've been living for myself, but now I realize I need to live for you. And I'm going to need your help. I'm going to stumble and fall at that. But I am going to seek to live for you. Jesus is Lord. I see that now. You have opened my eyes to that. He is Lord. And I want to live for him. That's what the Bible calls believe. It's not just knowing about Christ. It's not just, oh, I like Easter. That's a nice holiday, right? And it's not just... Oh, what an what a example of love. Yes, it is that, but it, it, it's more than that. Like I said, it, it's, it's declaring that Jesus is Lord now and that you have to live for him. And so the Bible's very clear. Turn from your sins. Embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior by faith, and you'll be saved. You'll be justified. You'll be reconciled. 
Spirit will come and live inside of you. God's, you'll know God loves you. The Spirit will remind you of that again and again. And you'll know that your future is secure. I pray that you'll do that today. And if, if any have any questions about that and would like someone to talk to, you can talk to me and talk to Pastor Shannon, talk to whoever um, perhaps you, you came with today as a guest. This all culminates in verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So he's talking to believers there, right? He's saying, this is what's true for you. You've been justified. You've been reconciled. You know your relationship's secure. You know he's going to see you go through all the way to the end. And so now rejoice in the reconciliation you have with God. In other words, rejoice in the relationship you have with God. Rejoice in God. God has made peace with us. God is for us. We will never face his wrath. God loves us and he will raise us in the end when Christ returns and we will be with him forever. So let us rejoice in God, rejoice in his love, rejoice in his mercy, rejoice in his grace. Let us rejoice in Christ in his love, and his power, his finished work, his faithfulness. Let us rejoice in God, our Savior. Rejoice in God daily, worshiping him, fellowshipping with him. Rejoice in your Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, as you daily follow him and learn from him. And rest in the security of your salvation, a peace that is rooted in the love and grace of God and shown to us through Christ. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your amazing love. And again, words kind of fail us to really describe it, but, but our hearts overflow with gratitude. It truly is amazing love that you would love us when we were sinners and enemies and not seeking you. That you would give your most precious gift your son, Jesus Christ, and that he would give up his very life. Thank you for the mighty work that Christ has done. I pray for all your people here today, Lord. I pray for for believers that you will just, again, give them a, a strong assurance of your love. Give them an assurance of the security that they have in Christ. That they would just be freed up to to rest in you and to rejoice in you and to worship and serve you. And Father, please continue to prove and show how loving and gracious you are by opening the eyes of those who are, are still in their sins. Or by your Spirit, even convicting them now of their sin, of their need for a Savior, and of drawing them to Christ, of giving them that faith that unites them to to the Lord Jesus. Lord, please do that. Please continue to show your, your power and grace and love. In Jesus' name, amen. We have the privilege of um, getting to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We do that on the first Sunday of every month. 
And so um, it's important that I give a few instructions about that. And then I'm going to take just give you just a minute to, um, to uh, kind of have a little quiet time between you and God. And then we're going to sing a song together. And you can sing if you want. If you need to continue to just pray to God, then please do that. Again, the Lord's Supper is, is, something, is a gift that the Lord Jesus gives to His church. It's a, it's a means of celebrating. It's a means of remembering. Christ's work on the cross is finished. He no longer <laughs> is suffering anymore. So the, the bread and the cup are, are not in any way becoming Christ. This is not a re-crucifying of Christ in any way. These are merely symbols to point us back to what He did in history that we've celebrated this weekend. And it reminds us that he has paid for our sins and that he is risen again and he's coming again for us. And so it's a great gift to God's people. Uh, The Bible does say that it should only be taken by those who have trusted in Christ as Savior, who have embraced him as Lord. So if you're here today and you've not done that, um, the men in a, in a moment are going to be passing out the, the, the bread and the cup all in one uh, container. Um, and they'll just be kind of putting the tray before you. You reach out and take it, okay? But if you've not trusted in Christ, I'd ask that you just let it go by. And we're not going to single you out. We're not going to embarrass you in any way. But it's, it's important that only those who are believers take the, the bread and the cup because it's reminding us of what Jesus has done. And if we've not embraced that or trusted in that, then it's really very disrespectful and kind of a mockery of what Christ has done to then be taking it. Okay? So, um, with those instructions, why don't we just take a moment and it's a chance for, if you don't know Christ, to, to call out to Him now in repentance and faith. If you do, to just thank Him and confess sins that that he's convicting you of.